We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for what is a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro. I'm joined again by my delightful colleague, Ryan Todd. Ryan, we have a really interesting episode. This is this is the round two of bringing in the folks at Tagome to explore what they're doing. When we were at the old office, we had some issues with the heat. We had some issues with the door slamming. And uh, it's, it's probably for the best because they have a little bit more to talk about. They've grown up a little bit more. It's almost been almost been in six months, more than six months since uh, they stopped by our old office. And um, they're known for being one of the few prime broker-like companies um, helping larger traders, more mature, sophisticated traders access different liquidity pools across various exchanges and OTC platforms. And it's interesting because at the same time as they were in stealth mode and trying to raise money, and I was a reporter at Business Insider, a lot of my sources at the time, and maybe they had known that you guys were were percolating, so to speak, they were telling me that what the market needed so desperately then in terms of bringing that institutional money off of the sidelines was a prime broker type entity. Here we are now in, in 2020, and there is still a lot of money sitting on the sidelines, so much so that we often think here if it'll ever trickle down into this market. And so that's kind of the question we'll be exploring today is what is the state, so to speak, of institutional money in crypto? Um, you hear the same stuff from your your sources in the industry. It's all about high net worth individuals. The banks are really not looking to get in quite yet. The, the larger banks. Um, FAs, today we had a survey from Bitwise that showed just 6% of the financial advisors they surveyed had allocated capital this space. So we're going to explore that. We're, we're going to explore what's holding those firms up because I, because I know you talk to them and I know uh, you're involved in very long due diligence onboarding processes with 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 firms like this. And so let's just get started. Well, first off, let's introduce the two very special people we have. 
Kevin Johnson, the chief operating officer at the firm, and we have Mark Bergava, one of the co-founders, one of the three co-founders. Um, so, gentlemen, let's let's start there. Um, let's explore the client profile, if you will, because I know we've gone a little bit downstream into some more retail e. We call them consumer, uh, prosumer type clients, but the bread and butter, I think, is still right. Those crypto native hedge funds. $50, $100 million um, in, in management. Has it changed since 2018 in any respect? Walk us through it. So I think we've seen a lot of good growth in the number of clients we've had. We've definitely had pretty good capture in terms of the largest funds. Um, a lot of them are investors in us, and a lot of them have been onboarded now. Um, I think we've seen a little bit of increase in diversity of the type of institutional clients we've seen. Uh, so the crypto hedge funds are the obvious choice. You know, family offices and venture firms that are owning crypto directly are the other thing we started with. Um, I think the areas of expansion that we've seen are a lot of other trading firms, uh, either desks that want some kind of better back-end trading system for what they're doing. Um, you know, they, they look to us as a way to, you know, give them that institutional trading system uh, that can let them focus on whatever their core business is. Uh, so we're basically all about taking this, you know, uh, group of technology that we've built for execution, for settlement, uh, for financing, and finding different use cases for different types of institutional clients, whether it's a trading firm or a quant fund or a, an index fund. Mm -hmm. And it's an end to, and, and the way you often describe it is as being a end-to-end -end solution. But when I when I hearken back on, on those days in 2018, and I, I heard about the desire for a prime broker, the firms that I thought of instantly who would want that type of service were, and before we turned on the mics, we were talking about interviews at Bridgewater and such, but those types of firms. And um, it's funny, uh, not too long ago, I was with one of your CEOs, Greg Tussar, at a event in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, with high net worth and, and institutional investors. And it was not a crypto native conference. So many of them were, uh, you know, approaching the space, so to speak, with a 10-foot pole. Why, rather, is it surprising that, or at least it's surprising to me that most of the firms you guys work with are these crypto-native firms, and you've kind of um, been able to build a business from, from that side of the market? Yeah, it, it's slowly changing with the offerings that are changing. So when we introduced trading on margin, shorting, uh, lending and borrowing of both cash and coin, you suddenly had a new group of clients that could come. And so those were the quant funds that are basically, you know, they're not crypto experts. Some of them don't even believe in it, um, but they do think they can take old strategies and apply them now and going long short on all kinds of different assets in the space. So in terms of surprises, I think, you know, we, we started really the idea late 2017, started the company very early 2018, launched first half of 2019 in, in earnest. Um, you know, groups that have been disappointing have definitely been family offices and large asset managers. And I think a lot of them were in it for the hype, but also, to be fair to them, a lot of them are looking for real use cases and are not finding all that many. The groups that have become more active are more the crypto funds, which is where the family offices tend to invest, and then the crypto funds sort of invest their capital. So indirectly, I'd say we're still getting a nice share of that sort of family office, institutional capital, but it's coming through the vehicle of the crypto funds. That was a bit of a surprise. Um, and then in addition to that, now the quant funds that are getting into the space and the hedge funds. And it's super exciting to have people like Greg Tussar at the helm who you know helped run Goldman for 13 years on the trading side and 
Kevin here, who's been with Two Sigma and Citadel and others, kind of helping these macro and quant funds get in the space. There have been surprises on the plus side too, though. So the surprise on the plus side are the big tech firms. In 2017, you know, I was angel investing in the space in 15, 16, 17. And in 2017, if you had told me Facebook, Square, SoFi, you know, the Chinese government were all getting into crypto, I'd have been like, wow, <laughs> Bitcoin's probably at 100K, right? If those are the names in it. Yeah. Um, I would have assumed at that time that it would be Goldman and, you know, maybe some of these banks and asset managers. But it's ended up being the really big institutions. And Goldman has seven times, you know, Facebook is seven times the market cap of Goldman. Um, these really big institutions that are coming in in 2020 tend to actually be tech institutions or government institutions instead. So we can obviously talk through more what that means for our product, how that's changed yeah, our strategy. That's but, super interesting. So it doesn't really stand at first glance that that connection doesn't really make that much sense, right? How does a Facebook building out something like Libra translate into uh, more business for Togomi aside from more clients saying that as a tailwind for the space? But I don't see a direct, is there a direct link? Think about any token, like we help a lot of the, actually an, a new group of clients, which we also weren't expecting, but turning on lending and margin has allowed us to attract as <clears throat> many of the token projects that want to manage their treasury. So if they need help getting listed on exchanges that Tagomi trades with and is close with, if they want to lend out the Ethereum they might have raised or the cash they have on their balance sheet to people who want to trade on margin. So treasury management has become a really large part of the prime brokerage operation. And, and that's, that's something you could extend then to Facebook. If anyone with a token, it's something we could extend if they want to create more, redeem more, um, if they want to lend out reserves, um, any of those pieces of it. So in general, we see a huge opportunity for anyone who wants to integrate Bitcoin suddenly on their platform. And, you know, you see a lot of tech companies starting to talk about that and, and making steps um, or anyone who wants to have their own independent token. Uh, they can use us for treasury management as well. So, you know, in 2020, definitely kind of this institutional class of tech is one we're keeping our eyes on, in addition to the very fast-growing group of more quant funds and hedge funds who are saying, look, we're not going into the protocol diligence um, of any of this stuff, but we're noticing patterns, we're noticing ARB or discrepancies, and we want to take advantage of that. And now suddenly Tagomi, which started more as best execution, is helping them do that on margin, is helping them short, um, you know, has a lot of different tools that we've built over now almost two years with people who obviously know this client base really intimately. And that's probably a higher margin business to be in. Absolutely. I mean, borrowing and lending, especially on some of the smaller assets, the rates are still high. That's not true on Bitcoin as much anymore. Um, but, you know, anytime you're extending credit, you have to analyze risk, you're doing those harder pieces. So I almost view like the trading and the custody as, look, it's the best price on Tagomi, and there's a reason for that. That's our user acquisition strategy um, is to have the best fee tiers, the best pricing across 14 liquidity sources, you know, we offer, we've been seeing custody at much lower rates than other folks offer. And so that sort of get folks in the door. The higher margin products, to your point, is exactly that. It's trading on margin. It's matching up lends and borrows, internalizing that, um, having the network effect around the prime brokerage piece. You mentioned these big tech companies moving into the space, uh, Square being pretty notable. They actually allow you to now withdraw, deposit Bitcoin. Is there an opportunity to, to help them source liquidity? on that back end and just using them as an example, but other other companies that... I mean, you have Robinhood as another example, right? That are sourcing liquidity from high frequency trading firms and... What's that look like? It seems opaque, just like based on the, the research we've done into that process. I don't... Yeah, so I think 
speaking about them generically, they all at their core have a need for some kind of trading and brokerage function, right? They, they're taking cash and turning it into coin or vice versa. And I think a lot of these firms that want to do that, they think, okay, well, do I want to do that myself? Do I want to outsource that somehow? And if I outsource it, what model do I use? And you know, we can look to the traditional equity space for interesting models like the PFOF sort of uh, wholesaling model that you see for retail brokerages. Payment for order flow. Uh, payment for order flow. Yep. Um, you know, otherwise they can also just principally trade it themselves. You know, if they have the sophistication to do that. But even if you do take the principal risk yourself, you, you still want somebody to give you market access, right? You know, it's not your core competency to build exchange connectivity and, and smart order routers and things like that. So there's always a need at these firms to have some kind of connection to the markets, whichever are the economic models that they choose. And our building blocks are flexible enough to be put together to service all those different kinds of needs. So that would be kind of like a golden goose, so to speak, or golden egg for you guys to step in between whatever market access Robinhood is maybe engaging with or Square is engaging with and kind of say, hey, just give it, give it to us all, give all of it to us and we'll sort of help you figure it out. Yeah. I think there's, there's two important things there. One is just the access and making it easy for them because it's our core competency. The other thing is the independence, right? So we, as an agency brokerage focus on getting best execution for our, for our clients in a transparent way, you know, we're not doing this as like a market maker or a prop shop. Um, so if you, as a retail app, you know, want to show to your clients that you're getting best execution, you're doing right by your clients, you're very transparent about how you do it, using an agency brokerage is a really great way to do that. Um, a lot of the other models are a little bit more opaque. Um, you know, so I think we can help kind of provide that, that layer of not only technology, but also transparency into the execution process. I, wanna, I think it's helpful for listeners. You know, I come from a traditional finance background. I know the term prime broker. I, I'm not really familiar with the term agency broker. What's the difference? I know we've thrown out that Tagomi does prime type services, but I don't know, it could be helpful yeah. talking through those two things. So, so I'd, I'd bucket prime services as, you know, obviously execution, providing best execution across, you know, other exchanges or market makers or, or brokers that you'd work with. It's providing that custody and that sort of true brokerage account holding your your, your, uh, your assets you guys for do you. offer that in yep. capacity. Yeah, we're full, fully licensed. Got we it. have an MSB, we have MTLs. You know, we're, we're able to hold customer funds on their behalf. Um, and then the third thing is that financing aspect, right? Providing the, the leverage and financing capability to do those institutional size trades. That's the prime brokerage piece. Now you can do that in different ways. Um, you can do that as a, as a principal where you're, you, know, you are the counterparty to trades with your clients, uh, which is a great service to provide if you know, your assets are illiquid or they're hard to source or they're you know, maybe not traded on many electronic exchanges. But what we see in other asset classes is uh, most things move to um, you know, a, a model where the, uh, your, your broker is essentially acting as an agent on your behalf, finding you the best prices across all of the different liquidity sources they can find. And what that does is it creates alignment between the client and the broker so that the client can trust the broker to get the best price on their behalf, to be transparent about how they did it and what they paid. Um, and that provides a lot of great incentives for that client. It means they can be very transparent with their investors or their, whoever they're a fiduciary to, or if they have retail clients, they can go to them and say, hey, you know, we're doing the right thing for you getting best execution. And what we've seen in other asset classes, especially you know, retail brokerage, you know, there's a lot of rules and laws around uh, that the SEC has put out around how you know, an Ameritrade uh, or an E-Trade has to be transparent about how they do things like payment for order flow. Um, so we would expect that any market, even the crypto market as it grows up, will be held to those same kinds of standards. And we can provide that level of transparency for our clients. As you guys have pivoted, in a sense, towards new services or 
added additional focus to services like treasury management or trying to attract large tech companies to offer them market access, the squares and Robinhoods of the world. How has the definition of prime broker, agency broker, in your view, changed? Yeah, so in 2017, um, for over six months, actually, my co-founder Jennifer, she was at Union Square Ventures, and I was investing with one other person, her brainchild. Uh, we spent over six months in 2017 basically looking for this deal. And the reason for that is this principal versus agency distinction. So in 2017, as you had the first Metastables and polychains and larger funds come to the market, as you had certain family offices start to double down because of their returns in Andreessen or USV or funds like that, you had people coming in and they were looking for like an interactive brokers of crypto. They were looking for like an agency. Um, and there were plenty of principal options. So in 2017, there was no lack of OTC desks that you could call up in Boston or New York or Chicago or SF. There was also several pretty large market makers and others. So there was absolutely no lack of, you know, principal folks in 2017. But we noticed that the more sophisticated folks coming from Wall Street were saying, no, you can't just mark up the price and send it to me. Like, I need to know where you got this, what price, what's the markup, what's the fee, how did you execute, would it be best execution standards? And Jen and I were sitting there like, oh, uh, okay, we'll try to find a company that does all of that for you. And, you know, we'll also obviously want to invest in that company when we find it for these LPs and these funds. Um, and we didn't find anything. Was we, one of those LPs Peter Thiel? Um, so... The Founders Fund Group, yeah, yeah, they've been investing for a while. I think it ended up breaking in the Wall Street Journal that since 2013. Um, so, yeah, so they were kind of one of the groups, too, that, that had this idea. Um, so there were some very smart people who understood trading and trade execution. And at first, for us, it, it looked like, why don't you go to OTC Desk? Why don't you go to a market maker? But all of those folks were trading on principle, and they needed more of an agency option. And so that's when we sat down with Greg. At the time, the head poly, uh, trader at Polychain, Chase Lockmiller, actually used to work for Greg. He now has a really awesome, successful uh, mining company called Crusoe Energy. But Chase said, hey, I know you guys are searching for this. There's this guy, Greg, who sold two companies. He's run Goldman. He actually coded up the first instance of sending multiple orders to an exchange. Like, this is the perfect guy to help you figure out who to back. Um, and so when we sat down with Greg and started really understanding this distinction between principal and agency and how there wasn't a single agency choice in this entire market, while, you know, in equities or FX, it might be 80% electronic and done through best execution, we said, this seems really obvious. And so the three of us teamed up. But the vision has always been uh, to be a prime brokerage. We specifically, folks would ask us, who's the interactive brokers for crypto? You know, who's allowing you to do all of these different services like lending, shorting, trading, margin. But best execution is really the best place to start because the most easy case to understand is I want to buy or I want to sell Bitcoin. And so that's kind of the most universal place to start. And bringing it back to some of these tech companies, like many of them are integrating just Bitcoin, right? Not the other stuff, not margin trading, not shorting. So the largest addressable market was people who wanted to do larger Bitcoin orders. And it was one we knew really well because they were kind of asking us for this help. So that's why we started with best execution, and it's not really a pivot. It's more adding these different layers to become interactive brokers of crypto, which we view as a really successful company. When you think about that original core feature, the best execution aspect of the platform, that was kind of what you viewed as the catnip, so to speak, that would lure in some of these folks who are sitting on the sidelines, folks like Founders Fund who, or, or others that you were speaking to who saw that as being the impediment to them getting to the space. Once you built that, do you think you over-indexed how important that would be 
to getting those institutional investors, not the crypto native hedge funds, but those larger asset manager types who are sitting on the sidelines? I think a lot of it is the market. So when we were making this observation that these you know, sophisticated larger asset managers needed best execution. So for example, uh, many of them are required to have it. Like an ETF, you have to be an authorized participant to do the buying and selling of ETF shares. So when we were sitting in 2017 and we were thinking about, okay, when ETFs come to the market, they're going to need best execution. We certainly were hoping that ETFs came to the market sooner. Um, and then they didn't. That doesn't mean that folks like Bitwise or Crescent Crypto or other clients of ours um, don't appreciate it. And many of them are obviously striving to be ETFs and we believe should become ETFs. Um, but certainly parts of the industry haven't matured as we'd liked, including some of these asset managers and ETFs coming into the into the game. I think another thing that didn't mature as we like is, you know, some of the scalability of protocols, the use cases. So there are a lot of things I think that sitting in 2017, you would expect more of, but having invested in the space for a while and been through several cycles, I can also tell you that there's some very exciting things that you wouldn't have expected. Um, and that's going on on the tech side and the international side. So you have to be nimble. And at the end of the day, we're in a good spot to be nimble because we're fundamentally just a technology firm. So we can mix and match these different pieces um, and maybe best execution for an ETF is not what the demand is, but best execution for you know someone, uh, a tech company that's suddenly putting Bitcoin up on their platform or a, we or a wealth manager. Who's and that's putting something you wouldn't have expected back in 2017. Totally. So you have to, I think our approach of having the best technology in the space and remaining compliant um, and then molding it to the use case in this super young industry is you know, something us and our investors are very aligned on. And, you know, we've we've seen good results so far from it. Who do you see as being your competitor in, in this respect? Always a loaded question because... Well, it's a it's not an easy question, really I'll admit, a, because... It's really hard. Asked actually, quite a, quite a lot. Yeah. Who, who is Tagami's competitor? I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of substitutes, right? So yeah. if you want to buy a Bitcoin, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. And, you know, depending on how you get into the market and what you care about and what you prefer, you can get it done in different ways. You can obviously go to a Coinbase, but in, an institutional investor is not going to put $10 million into a Coinbase account, you know, when they need best execution and they need an account that their ops team can interact with, right? So, um, Or they want to trade on margin or short or, you know, a plethora of product lines. Yeah. So I think our, our combination of the prime brokerage services, the best execution, actually having a true brokerage account with the licenses and providing financing on an agency basis is still quite unique. There are other people that offer similar services, but I think if you dig into it a little bit, they do it in a different way, either on a principal basis or they don't have licenses or it's only one source of liquidity. So I think, you know, if you're an institutional investor, you have to do your diligence on what's important to you, what do your fiduciaries require you to do, and then make sure that you know exactly how your broker's operating. What if you're not an institutional investor? My impression, and, and I might be imprecise or inaccurate as I often am. Um, you're good so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate your, your unwavering support. Um, but you're right. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm sure you guys would be happy and, and, you know, I don't know if whenever Greg would say it to me, if he was kidding or not, but to, to, to sort of have me open up account and try it. Um, my impression is you'd be happy to have even, even little guys on there. You know, if I want to make a few $500, $1,000 Bitcoin trades, it, I mean, it might not be the best user experience compared to a Coinbase, but I'm sure you'd be happy to take their money. 
Yeah, so, so we, how do you, we actually view that quite differently. Yeah. <clears throat> so we provide... Like our, I said, I might be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we provide our clients with um, a certain level of customer support and consultation that we cannot do at scale. Um, so we are very focused on people placing larger trades. So we don't have a specific minimum on the platform because we've found you know, crazy influencers go on there and use it and then they sign up their, you know, $200 million fund the next week or something. So we're, we're not out there marketing to the consumer Ooh. and we don't, and we don't want the consumer either um, because we really want people placing larger trades. Sure. So the only element that you'd benefit from on our platform is if there was a price difference between the 10 exchanges and four market makers we work with, we would route you to whichever has the yeah. best price. And you but probably wouldn't get that big of a price difference, yeah, but, the, the, but the platform itself is sleek. So it is sleek, I yeah. mean, I could see someone like myself who's very poor interested in using it. We would love for you to use it. We'd love for more <laughs> people it. in the press or influencers yeah, right? to use it. Yeah, no. But really it's for people, you know, doing trades of at least 25K to 250K in size is sort of the small end. And then we've had, you know, a certain client and several clients trade more than 100 million with us. And, you know, those are more where we're going. So I think, think of us again as interactive brokers. Fair it's, a real, it's a really good analogy because interactive brokers has pretty legit hedge funds on it all the way down to like two GSB grads are starting a fund. Sure. But it doesn't sure. have Frank, you know, it's sure, somebody sure, who's sure. spending all of their time trading and maybe they're not really a pro, but at least they're full time. At least you they know, have some cash. They have a couple hundred K. I think that's kind of where we draw the line because we have a lot of customer support or a lot of risk analysis, many of these tools that, you know, it doesn't make sense to support for, for retail. So let's focus in on those lar the companies making those larger trades. You don't need to tell me who your largest clients are because I already know. No, I'm kidding. I have no, I have no idea. I haven't the faintest idea. But what do they look like? You, th you think about the most active players on the platform is it simply just those those larger um, crypto native funds like a Pintera or something similar to that? Those are definitely you know a large part of our base. Um, you know either fundamental or quantitative hedge funds that will use us for all their trading, execution, and custody needs. Um, you know there are other categories of people that use us too. You know we have a lot of mining firms that use us. They like the best execution. Uh, they like you know using us to uh, you know to kind of facilitate that through our API. Um, you know, there, so there are lots of different types of institutional clients that do a fair amount of trading. Um, you know, some of these quant funds are sending us orders every couple minutes, right? You know, so they appreciate the low-touch electronic access, um, the fact that they can focus on their strategies, their alpha, and not worry about exchange connectivity. Um, so I, I think it's actually an interesting mix between those larger funds and other ones. Going off the, the, the crypto-native uh, firms and stuff, uh, you mentioned at the start of the pod, uh, addressable market being high frequency, quant shops, that, that sort of audience. I'm curious, because I'm not in the room on this, but what's that conversation look like when you're trying to onboard that type of client on into this space? Um, and do events like, uh, say, this week's CME launch of options make the space a little bit more appetizing for that type of client? That's a great question. I definitely think for the non-crypto native funds, they're looking for a bunch of things before they move into the space, right? The presence of a prime broker is is table stakes for them. And to have a trusted counterparty that has all the services that we provide, they absolutely need that. But they are going to look for a bunch of other things in the market. They're going to look for you know, enough volumes on trusted exchanges. They're going to look for derivatives like what have been launched. So I think that's what it'll take to get the other non-crypto institutions into the space. And, and, and we're ready for them. Like as soon as they want to make that leap, we will look familiar to them. You know, we will have the kind of integration 
and uh, customer service that they would expect from their biggest prime brokers in traditional asset classes. Um, so that's why we're going to really focus this year on adding other products, you know, looking at the derivative space, you know, continuing to build out our financing capability. Uh, and we're ready for them. And we're, you know, we're certainly talking to a lot of them and they're keeping tabs on the market. Um, and, and we think we're the right choice when they're ready. And those cycles take so long, mm-hmm. those due diligence cycles. I remember I spoke with one exchange who talked about onboarding um, a rather large $20 billion hedge fund. They ended up getting the account open after it must have been six months. But to my knowledge, I don't even know if that firm ever made a trade. Right. And I'm sure you guys have experienced similar situations in which, you know, you have these incredibly long cycles of due diligence. What does that look like? And and walk us through the anxieties that some of these firms have and sort of coming on board. Yeah, I think I think it's important to point out first that it can go quickly. Right. So sure. for firms that have all their stuff ready to go and the product is already a great fit for them. Uh, we can onboard a firm very quickly. And, and then what we focus on at that point is, you know, do they do they know how to use the product? Have we lined up all the right features for them? Have we made all the right customizations for them in the product? You know, we can do things like sub portfolios and we can have multiple logins to the same portfolio. We can have different levels of permissions. You know, these are all features that frankly don't exist in any other crypto platform uh, or exchange out there in most cases. So we spent a lot more of our time then just making sure the product is customized for them. For the ones that go through a longer process, it is often about learning more about our setup, our security, our licensing. You know, they have teams that do diligence all day, and so they, you know, they ask a lot of great, important questions. And we'll do whatever it takes then to make sure they understand how we work and how we've covered all the bases to make sure we are uh, compliant, you know, we're licensed, we have the security procedures in place to to safely handle their money. So. I think it's it's important to note that it can be a long process, but it can go very quickly. And, and a lot of that is just focusing on customization. Outside of the robustness or the readiness of of the firm and your platform, is there anything external to that that sometimes serves as the impediment? Internal politics, for instance, at larger investors or just, you know, we were talking um, to one of our sources at a financial firm that had a uh, crypto initiative that literally went through everything and on the last signature sort of fell apart. Right. So that as an example, do you, is that just, is that part of it or yeah, maybe not? Yeah, for sure. I think like firm ownership structure really matters. So you could have a massive hedge fund, but if it's run by one or two people who really run it versus, you know, a publicly traded financial firm, they might be the same size, but obviously one has a couple decision makers. And in the cases where there's a couple decision makers, having an in is super helpful. And there are kind of two ways that we've seen that play out for us. One is many of them work with Greg and were clients of Goldman Sachs for over a decade. Um, might have even worked with him at you know the firm before that that was acquired by Goldman. That's how Greg got there. So we've had you know RIAs and other very traditional folks. This guy has helped me do trade execution for 20 years. Why is he suddenly buying and selling Bitcoin for people? Maybe I should buy some. And you know, when we launched, Bitcoin was 4,000. So that whole class of folks is doing really great. And we're very, very excited for them and, and hope it goes higher. They're taking Greg out for <laughs> dinner and drinks. <laughs> so that that's one group. Um, another group, you'd be surprised to see that many of these folks invest in venture capital. So many of these hedge fund managers are LPs and founders fund, or they invest alongside Joe Lonsdale or Elod Gill or some of our other angels um, who've made great introductions as well. So generally, like the two things that would make it go fastest is one, there's a limited set of decision makers versus a committee and a board and all these other things. 
and then and that exists for some pretty massive um, kind of financial uh, platforms. And then the second is having some sort of relationship. And normally that comes through people on our team or investors. Um, but then there are other ones where there's a really long process and it's just tough. And honestly, they care a lot more about the price than they let on. So, you know, we went through like six, seven months diligence, um, you know, coming up to our launch. And then we were excited to work with folks. But, you know, we launched at Bitcoin 4000 and stayed five to six for a while. Um, and, you know, a lot of the working committees suddenly disappeared. And then they, the working committees, we knew it would take them nine months to a year, right? It wasn't Greg's first rodeo winning over some of these large clients. So we knew it was a nine month to year process. And sort of six months in, all the committees disappeared because the price crashed. And of course, they give you a totally different answer, right? Like, oh, we realize blockchain is not, like Bitcoin's not scalable or whatever. And we're like, no, you didn't realize that. You <laughs> saw the price crash and no one wants to advocate for it because everyone's up for a promotion. So all the committees stopped. And then it was funny how they all kind of restarted like, you know, four or five months ago. Right. So when I think about, you know, price outlook and obviously at Tagomi, we do not give any price outlooks or et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that, you know, a lot of the process has started back up when Bitcoin kind of came out of that trough. So for a lot of these institutional folks, they will do their usual six months, nine months, 12 month process. And a lot of those kicked off, you know, six months ago. So that's just one group of investors. There's so just many. Just cross your fingers for another three months or. Yeah, we'll but so to, much uh, can, so much can happen now. there. So, so I think definitely, you know, it's just a very different nuanced flavor. So at Tagomi, we're a team of only 22 people. We only have one person working on sales. We're technology and product focused. So for us, the client acquisition has been all referrals. It's folks like Paradigm and Pantera and Multicoin and others publicly saying, we looked at investing in pretty much every trading platform. Uh, we could use any trading platform and we invested in Tagomi and we used Tagomi and people say why and you know we get the intro uh, we onboard them we have them use the product you know we service them really well and so our growth has been just all organic and I think you know that will have to change as we grow as a company we'll need to think about like we don't have a blog you know we'll have to do things like that SEO optimization marketing etc but right now our focus is really just on can we have the best product period for all these different services and get there quickly and you know we're big believers in the industry and we're excited about a lot of the more technical aspects that are going on there and we ultimately think that is what will have to drive this not just necessarily that the perfect product is ready for institutionals part of driving that adoption and attracting those customers has been dropping your feet here on the exchange side to to zero right and i'm sure there are some folks out there and it's been a question hanging over equities for a long time, uh, who think, well, when fees are zero, then don't I become the product, so to speak? And I don't know if that's a concern that, that yeah, folks so, bring to you, but so how our, do you address So our fees it? are 10 basis points down to five basis points on trading. So it's not zero. So we, we definitely have those all in. The exchange it's fees, though, were brought to zero. So any time a order is routed to an exchange, there is no fee for that. But obviously for OTC, you would then pay for that bit that's right of there. Yeah, so all our tiering is kind of 10 bips down to five, all in, doesn't matter if it goes to exchange or OTC. That is very low. Look, it's one of the lowest in the space to have that sort of liquidity. Um, we route across both um, exchanges and market makers, and we don't make a lot of money off of trading. Uh, we use it though as the product to attract people to the higher margin piece. So part of, there were two reasons we decided to reduce our fees. One was we launched all these higher margin products and we wanted to get more and more folks in the funnel to get them to those higher products, all the prime brokerage stuff. And then the second was our volumes were picking up. So we were becoming 
kind of the lowest tier on all these different exchanges. So also our cost of trading for us as Tagomi uh, really went down, and we wanted to pass that along to the customer. So those were the two reasons to have a very compelling, what we think is really kind of best-in-class fee structure on the trading side. Um, and, you know, we'll continue to grow the business on prime brokerage. How the, have the exchanges sort of picked up on that? Are they starting to get a little wary that they're feeding the beast, so to speak, who in many respects are taking the client away from them on the front end? I think in a lot of cases, you know, especially... Or they the, just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot a lot of the bigger clients that we're really going after, you know, wouldn't onboard to an exchange directly themselves. I mean, you know, if you're at a large multi-billion dollar asset manager, you're not going to take a selfie with your passport and, you know, like share a login and password with your entire ops team. Like, they're just not not equipped for that. So I think it's, um, you know, it's the sort of thing where we're, we're geared fundamentally toward servicing those larger clients. And then, you know, look, we'll route to the exchanges with the best prices, right? So the exchanges are still going to get that liquidity, but they're going to compete for it. And, and we're going to do that in a transparent way that demonstrates that we're doing the right thing for our clients. But in some, in some cases, they do lose that direct relationship with the client. We think it's offset, though. So it's kind of a trade-off, right? Absolutely. There were some people who had a Coinbase account, a Kraken account, a Bitstamp account, a Gemini account, and they had all the screens open, and they were, you know, manually trading across the different ones. And, you know, you're losing some of that direct connectivity and you probably don't like that. On the other hand, we bring in, you know, quant funds and others that need long short strategies that you can't do on an individual exchange. And so they're getting new volume. So we think it's just part of a market shift. And eventually it'll look not that dissimilar to equities or FX where, you know, you don't go trade directly on NASDAQ or whatever um, if you're an institution. So I think um, it's just a shift of market structure. There's obviously some downsides for them, you know there are a lot of upsides too. And I think ultimately many of these exchanges to grow into their valuations realize that they need new new liquidity, well, new, new people coming yeah. in, new scale. So scale. Well, to that point, do you expect consolidation this year within the exchanges? Yeah, has to be. To a degree. So um, you know, one of our one of our investors and someone who is very encouraging us to start the company is a guy called Jay Kim, who's like probably the most important but least known guy in crypto. Because uh, he's really nice, humble uh, guy. He started a company called Nexon, which makes Counter Strike and a bunch of awesome games um, out of his apartment in Korea. It's now a sixteen billion dollar company. Uh, Jay was super early in the space. He invested in Corbit, one of the early exchanges in Korea, um, and he recently bought Bitstamp, um, the exchange in Europe. Oh yeah. Um, so Jay, someone who has been looking at the exchange space for a long time, was one of our first backers and investors, and just has a great insight on that. And I think you know to answer your question. You'll see consolidation within geographies, but not across geographies generally. So the exchange retail business is highly regulated because retail is getting affected. So like in Korea, they got really upset when you know some of the retail exchanges started doing margin, weren't KYCing, and so the Korean government definitely wants to have an oversight on that. Same with the Japanese government, the special license they've now created. Even here in the US, trying to get a bit license as a foreign exchange is much harder at least from the experiences we hear from our partners. So I think because of this regulatory aspect, you're going to see, sure, within the U.S., within Europe, within Japan, a degree of consolidation because it's a bear market and fees have to go down because folks like us don't route to you if you have high fees. Um, but I think that you'll still have fragmentation globally. So that's a lot of what we offer. You know, the 10 exchanges we have on platform are very global. Um, and to really tap that global liquidity, you have to use someone like us. There's so many directions in which I want to go, but the goal for 2020 is to keep these things tight. So I have two more questions. Oh <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all right. 
we asked the last guest on the show um, what they thought about Libra. I think it'd be a good question to end things, at least for the next couple episodes. And I'm the host, so I get to do that. But in any case, you mentioned how there's opportunity potentially in the future, treasury management services, et cetera. Um, have you talked to them? Is that something you've talked with them about? Yes, no, maybe so. And then follow up to that question, also Libra related. Do you think it launches in 2020? So I think I am actually quite bullish on Libra and, and Calibra. Um, not a lot of people know this, but like Mark Zuckerberg is actually one of the world's best civilization players, the game. He's super smart, super creative, and wants to take over the world. You know, we have quite a lot of overlapping investors. Um, and he's not putting this out for PR. You know, there are plenty of large institutions that might be uh, putting out Bitcoin and crypto for PR to show how tech forward they are. That's not Facebook or Instagram. You know, it's a very tech forward company that doesn't need that. It's doing it because it wants to do it. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of resources in the company. It's senior people are really pushing it forward. Um, and the vision is honestly one of the primary use cases of crypto. So when I think of use cases, like payments is absolutely one of the top three use cases for crypto to have mass adoption. I've always thought that, you know, and I think Facebook has realized it has 2 billion distribution. Payments is the most obvious use case for crypto. It is why Bitcoin was originally started. Sure, it's now switched more to store of value, et cetera. But, you know, the first sort of transactions Hal Finney was using, you know, wasn't to store value as a hedge to markets, blah, blah, blah. It was payments. And so I think Facebook has identified that. So I think it's really just an implementation question. Um, but it's hard to imagine that, you know, with all the regulatory sort of resources that they have, that there won't be some sort of resolution to how it'll be done. So I am bullish, but let's say longer term. My prediction probably would be maybe it doesn't launch this year, maybe it launches next year. It's too hard for us. And at Tagomi, we don't really time these sort of things. Like again, for us, it's just build the best technology, be ready for whenever it launches. And we obviously have an existential question of, you know, are we too early, are we too late? We definitely don't think too late, but maybe too early. But, you know, we're just kind of head down operators that are going to build an infrastructure that could support them should they when they want to launch. I also think that they're tackling a lot of the questions that people are asking of crypto directly. Right. So questions around jurisdiction and legality and travel rule and all the things that, you know, we're sort of scrambling to figure out when we look back at Bitcoin or Ethereum or how they were launched or how they sort of affect rules and regulations. You know, something like Libra, they got to go tackle these things head on. You know, and they're going to go in front of Congress. They're going to go in front of the governments and, and really like hash these things out versus other cryptocurrencies where you don't really have somebody to frankly go talk to. Um, so that's going to do a great service for industry because it's going to force us to really answer some of these questions and figure out what would work in different jurisdictions. You know, what could we change about the network structure? What could we change about, you know, the way that we operate a wallet to make it work for the current legal regime and then evolve that and work with the governments to change it? Um, so I think it's, it's actually going to provide a lot of great insight and do a lot of great education uh, for the governments around the world. Very good answer. Well, thank you so much. This is exactly this was great. This is exactly what I want the scoop to look like in 2020. Tons of insights, tons of good stories. Thank Thanks you so much. It. Thank you so we'll much. Be back anytime. Shigomi, yeah. Thank you, guys. Mark, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. 
It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy.